We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You're listening to Founder Stories with Anouk and Barack. Brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. And I decided to use Israel's best invention ever. We invented one of the greatest inventions in the world called chutzpah. And whoever doesn't know what chutzpah is, balls. Hi, and welcome to Founder Stories. Today on the show, United Hatzalah founder Ellie Beard talks about saving 3 million lives with flash mobs of medics on scooters, bringing Arabs, Jews, Christians, and others together along the way, and the real meaning of chutzpah. In 1978, you witnessed the explosion of the number 12 bus. Can you Tell us a little bit about that event and how that set the course of your life. Well, uh, that event was something that no one ever experienced before. It was, uh, it was uh, the first bomb that ever blew up on a bus in, in Israel. That bus was uh, an old Tiger bus. Um, and Eged used to have these cheers that underneath the cheers you could just leave uh, packages and... Uh, a terrorist came on the bus. Uh, he left a bomb underneath one of these cheers. And no one expected a bomb to blow up on a bus. And I was not far from the bus stop when the bus stopped there. And uh, I was a young boy. You know, I didn't uh, I didn't know anything about nothing. I was just waiting to go back home on a Friday afternoon. How old were you? I was, uh, before I was six. I was uh, close to six. But I was a very mature kid. I was always very aware of everything. I was very into cars then, very into, I remember the type of the bus. And uh, the bus got close to the bus stop, and right there it blew up. Um, I remember the bus on fire and many, many people screaming for help. But I don't remember the whole scene. I just remember one person in particular who was just laying there and screaming for help to uh, someone to pick him up and, uh, and, uh, and help him get up. I don't know how old he was. He looked like he was older. He could be he was 20 or 50 or 100. I don't know how old he was. But I remember he was an older person, and I was a young kid, and I just ran away, leaving him on the floor. And that's uh, my what I remember from that attack. I remember reading that you bought some police scanners, and you just tried to try to fix this yourself, the idea of getting help to people who need it as fast as possible. I always dreamt of being a doctor. After what I saw in the bus, bus attack, I was always thinking of how to save someone. All I was thinking about, maybe it was about curing my own uh, trauma, seeing what I saw when I was a child, but I was always interested in becoming a lifesaver. So um, when I was 15 years old, I went to volunteer in the back of an ambulance. And uh, it was a great feeling just helping people, but I realized after one and a half years of volunteering in the back of an ambulance, we actually never saved anyone. We helped people, but people who, who needed us to come immediately, we never got there in time. The traffic and the distance. And um, I was an EMT. I went to train as an EMT when I was 15. And for a year and a half, being in the back of an ambulance, and I was very frustrated that the fact that I, we got to emergencies that people had no heartbeat. And by the time we got there, we couldn't do anything. 
we tried, but we couldn't we couldn't succeed. And then uh, when I was about um, 16 and a half years old, we had an emergency about a seven-year-old boy who was choking from uh, a hot dog, having lunch. And we were coming out of a hospital just after we transferred someone to the hospital. We were the only ambulance available in the city of Jerusalem. And they uh, rushed us to the ambulance and said, you have to rush this young boy choking. The ambulance driver did everything possible to get there in time, but it took us 21 minutes to get to, to this child. Wow. It was devastating for the mother. She was hysterical, screaming at us. She, she thought it took us three, four hours. And uh, you could think about every minute she sees her son on the floor not breathing. And uh, when we ran upstairs, we didn't even need to know where the address is because we just heard the screaming and yelling. We started CPR on this child. And two minutes into CPR, a doctor who lives a block away was walking his dog. And he saw the ambulance park down, and he said, "If you know, this is not New York City. This is a little neighborhood. You see an ambulance, you're probably wondering what's going on. He's a doctor. He's a good person. He says, I'll help. And he goes upstairs with the dog, and he says, I want to help. I'm a doctor. And they, we tell him what happened, and he checks the boy, and he, and he sees the situation, and he says, there is nothing to do. Just bring a sheet to cover him. Hmm. And that moment, I just burst out crying. It was the most... Difficult moment for me as a child, 16 and a half years old, to see a boy, seven years old, dying from nothing. It's not a bomb attack. It's not a car accident. It's not even cancer. It's a little object which blocks the air coming into the lungs that every person who knew what to do could have done it, but they waited for us to do it when we came from the other side of town. And a doctor was a block away with his dog. He didn't even know about this emergency happening. That moment I realized, ambulances don't save lives. People save lives. And why is it that we always, I used to write down every emergency, how long it takes us to get there. Our average response time was 17 minutes. It doesn't make sense that an ambulance should take 17 minutes while a doctor who's out of his home playing with his dog or watching TV or just talking to his children, another child is dying and he doesn't even know about it. So I decided to start this response team to respond before ambulances. I could get a bunch of people responding to calls before ambulances, and it made so much sense. Can you talk about that in more detail? Who, who were the guys? Your friend Moshe from down the street? or And how did you, back then, alert people? It was all about Moshe and Chaim, and all my friends, all EMTs, I said, listen, guys, let's start this response team, Hatzalah, and respond to calls before ambulances. And they said, perfect idea. How are we going to get the emergency calls routed to us? Because no one's going to know to call us. The same way no one knew to call that doctor. People call an ambulance. They know the number of an ambulance. And they say, okay, an emergency, someone's choking, call an ambulance. While 15 of us were all around the neighborhood, we were ready to go respond to the calls. So we went to the ambulance service, to the heads of the ambulance service in Jerusalem, the head of the union, actually, but he wasn't convinced. He said, it's the stupidest idea ever. He says, when someone calls for help, they have to get an ambulance. That's how it is everywhere. That's how it is in France. That's how it is in England. That's how it is in America. When someone calls for help, you need professional people to come with ambulances. I said, what does it matter how professional we are if we never get there in time? And that's when I was kicked out of the building. <laughs> <laughs> and I was looking at him and I said, you know what? 
I don't need your help. I'll manage myself. And he was laughing. And I decided to use Israel's best invention ever. We invented one of the greatest inventions in the world called chutzpah. And whoever doesn't know what chutzpah is, balls. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that's what I can explain chutzpah easiest, right? You need a good set of balls to do something good. If you want to do something and they don't allow you to do it, you need to find a way how to do it. And if they close the door, you come through the window. And I went ahead and I bought police scanners and these walkie-talkies that you could actually listen to the police, you could listen to the fire, you could listen to ambulances, whatever you want to listen to. And we wanted to hear the ambulances because they knew where to go. They knew if an emergency is happening anywhere. So if Chaim is right next to an emergency and an ambulance is dispatched from the other side of town, Chaim could run there and save that person's life. So at this point, you're 16 and a half years old. You've witnessed a horrendous terrorist attack when you were six. You've witnessed the death of a small child of seven years old. Do you believe in fate? Do you believe you were there at those moments in time because you were meant to do what you went on to do? And do you believe you would have done what you've done if you hadn't witnessed those events? And could anyone else have done what you did? I'm a big believer of Basharit. I mean, it was meant to be. I don't believe I would have done it if I didn't see what I saw. I don't believe I would have done it if I didn't have that drill since I was six years old to go ahead and save people's lives. Because kids dream of doing a lot of things. Kids dream when they were kids to go be uh, astronauts. Our kid dreams of being Sammy the Fireman. Mm -hmm. Exactly, Sammy the Fireman. And I believe me, when they grow up, they don't even remember that's what they (laughs) dreamt of because who wants to be a fireman? It's kids want to be firemen. So you're a real, I mean, in, in, in the best sense of the term, you are a disruptor, which is generally applied to tech startups. But you disrupted an entire industry, which was working in a certain way, meant to help people, but really not doing the best it could. And it's like a whole herd of people were just going in one direction because it's always been done that way. How do you go with your police scanners? How do you go from there to actually creating United Hatsala and saving millions of people along the way? I didn't know what a disruptive person is till I, you know, started hearing all these fancy words before. But I, <laughs> I remember one day they brought a big ambulance to the ambulance station. Like they had smaller ones, like vans, and all of a sudden they brought a huge box ambulance, like a truck. Everyone was so excited about this. And I said, it doesn't make sense. What do we need such a fancy big ambulance? It costs twice as much. It can't move fast enough. I said, these ambulances are so big, they're going to probably get stuck in traffic. Especially in the streets of Jerusalem where you can't move anyway. But the workers were so happy because they're going to be much more comfortable in the back of them sitting in a very comfortable cushion. And I said, you know what? I see pizza delivery people who are delivering pizza in Jerusalem and they want to get a big tip. So in order to get a big tip, they want to get there when the pizza is still hot, boiling hot, because that's when you give a tip. (laughs) So these guys would jump on a motorcycle, put a pizza in the back, ride through the streets in between cars, 
on the sidewalk, hit three people on the way, <laughs> and just get and there on time. That's where you get in, where they hit the three people, and then you come into it. <laughs> I said, we come with huge ambulances. These pizza guys are coming so fast. I said, you know what? I'm going to build the smallest ambulances in the world. Not the biggest ambulances. doesn't make sense. I'm going to build the smallest and most narrowest ambulances in the world. And I took a pizza delivery motorcycle, and I turned it into an ambucycle. We were the first ones to think about it in the world. I didn't have Google then. Did you coin that word, ambucycle? Ambucycle was actually a word uh, my wife Gitty came up with. When I came so excited, I said, we're going to take a motorcycle and turn it into an ambulance. And she said, that's an ambucycle. <laughs> <laughs> love it. So I, I was like, wow, that's a good idea, that name. I love that name. And we're going to put everything there is in the back. I'll put an oxygen tank, defibrillator. And who had defibrillators in the streets then? Only like three ambulances in Jerusalem had defibrillators then. I said, we're going to have these volunteers riding them to work. They're going to go everywhere. And if some emergency happens... They don't have to look for parking. They don't. Have, they just drive to the emergency. Nothing will stop them. And my friends say to me, Ellie, we have to go get permission from the government, the Israeli government, to get this these things with lights and sirens to drive through traffic. It's it's an illegal thing to do. You need to get permits and everything. I look at my friends. I said, Are you nuts? You want me to be ninety years old when I get the permits? I want to save lives now. I said, I'm going to give them the permits. I'm going to give them the license to drive the lights and sirens. <laughs> I said, we're going to make it look so official. No one will ever, ever imagine it's not official. And I said, you rather in Israel do first do and then ask for forgiveness than ask for permission before, right? <laughs> so we started the ambicycle unit, and it started responding to calls. Half the time, we would respond with our own cars. Because we started the Uber idea that today everyone uses Uber or Lyft or Get or whatever it is you use for to get anywhere. Think about it. We started that 29 years ago in Jerusalem. You could have been a billionaire. I could have. I think I'm bigger than a billionaire. I feel bad for the heads of Uber that didn't think about my idea. <laughs> they could have saved millions of people instead of making money. Speaking of money, how did you finance these early ambucycles? Luckily, I have good friends who believe in my mission. And uh, I have a lot of great amazing people, including you, who believed in this mission. I remember I told you about this. And sure. you said, you know what? I could have my parents' name on it. Yeah, my parents passed away, and my sister and I thought about what we could do to honor them and couldn't think of something better than this. And that's the beauty about this. I got volunteers who are Meshuggah and to stop everything they do and lose money by going out to save people. They don't make money. None of us make money from responding to calls. And they, they leave work, they leave home. And then I have other Michiganists who give their money to buy these motorcycles. And they donate the money, and we buy these mach machines. Now, every one of these motorcycles, ambicycles, have a name to it. And the, the people who sponsor it are partners. So I, I got an amazing partnership between sponsors and volunteers, who are both donors. I think donors give their money, volunteers give their time. It's the same exact thing. And you really bring them together in your messaging. I know that I got a uh, SMS every time our scooter was used to help someone, and I showed all my friends, look, I actually helped save these people. But equally, you can adopt a team of paramedics, and then on the holidays, you get, you get a nice photo of your team. Who's the mastermind behind all that marketing? 
I have great people. Honestly, I just, I come up with ideas. Some of them are great. Some of them are not so good. And then I give my team to think about them. I, I It's funny. They have a joke. Every time I go into a shower, I come up with a new idea. Uh-huh. I came out with a great idea a couple of months ago. And I said, you know what? We treat over 1,200 people every day for free. We need to buy them oxygen. We need to buy them medicines to replace what they use. We need to train them. It costs us everyday money. It costs $18,000 to operate this organization every single day in Israel. And I told my, uh, my team, no one's donating towards this. I have to come up with an idea how to get these people to donate the money for actual operations. And I was one day taking a shower. Come out of the shower, I said, sponsor a day of life saving. And I called my team and I said, listen, from now, we're going to sell days. My father's day of passing was August 13th. And I'm going to take that day as my family. We're going to sponsor the whole day of life saving. And then we're going to have a whole book of all the life savings that happened that day with my mother's name on it to say, mom, here's a gift. My father's day of memorial is sponsored to save thousands of lives, help so many people. So you have Haredi, secular, female, Jewish, Arab, Druze responders. Does everyone respond to everyone? An area so ripe with socio-political strife, how do you get people to overcome that in order to come together to save lives? So it's originally it wasn't like that. I must uh, confess, we, uh, we started Haredi ultra-Orthodox, because that's where we grew up. I grew up in a religious, not like here, yeah, much more ultra-Orthodox than this area where we are now. You weren't wearing a pink shirt back then. I wasn't wearing a pink <laughs> shirt then. I grew up in a very ultra-Orthodox com- uh, community. My parents made Aliyah to Israel. They moved to the right. And my mother, you know, she turned, everyone turned to the right. You know, that you have to choose where you are. You know, it's colors. Everything is colors in Jerusalem. What color is your shirt? And they choose the white shirt, the black bands, and that's where we went. And I grew up like that, and and all my friends were like that. And then one day I realized, if we, I had a mission of 90-second response to everyone. I said, I can't get to 90 seconds in Tel Aviv because I have no volunteers in Tel Aviv who are wearing white shirts and black pants. I have to get some pink shirts. I have to get some female volunteers. And that's how I started spreading out to the non-religious communities in Israel. It was very hard. Very, very hard because the non-religious were scared to join this organization and said, oh, all you guys are religious. I said, of course we're religious, but when you join us, not everyone's going to be religious anymore. You have to break the ice. And it was very hard to convince non-religious volunteers to join us. But then it just became an amazing organization. It changed and one day I get a phone call from uh, two guys, one uh, Morad and another guy, Muhammad. They want to meet me. And I said, what is it about? They said, uh, we want to talk about Hazola. They couldn't say the word Hazola hmm. because it's like a very hard word to say. And I said, and you did say you say it mean- with a Yiddish accent. Yeah, it was Hazola. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, do you mean Hezbollah or Hazola? Because <laughs> I was like in a good mood that day and I didn't know what they were talking about. I, he says, no, Hazola, Hazola. I thought he meant Hezbollah. And he said, no, 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 I, we want to talk about that. And they, and they told me about how they wait for sometimes an hour for an ambulance in East Jerusalem because of the security measures. They have to wait for a police escort to come in. And he said, Muhammad told me his father 
died in front of his eyes when he was waiting for an ambulance and his father had a cardiac arrest. And he said it took 55 minutes for the ambulance to arrive. And his father was very young. He's 52 years old. And my father died in front of my eyes. He says, I promised myself, I'm, I'm going to go save lives. I'm going to learn how to save lives. And I'm going to save everyone's lives. And when he told me that, I said, you know what? When I started this organization, Atzala was all about saving lives of people, not saving lives of Jews. I never said saving lives of Jews. Saving lives of people. Human beings under the skin were the same color. I said, Alan Wasalan, join me. And it was probably the best thing I ever did in my life, joining non-Jews to United Hatzela. And that's when we changed the name from Hatzela to United Hatzela. That was one of my questions. We need this kind of unity now more than ever. You've done it through the rescue service. Did you ever imagine it taking other shapes, maybe led by other people? To, serve, to, to achieve that objective? I know your goal is to save lives, but the side product or along the way, you're bringing people together. Maybe it's planting trees, but could it work if it, if it wasn't lives? Look, lives is so obvious. You have children, I have children. Muhammad has children. We all want our children to be safe. Every volunteer of ours who joins us knows you treat everyone equally, no matter who these people are. And that's the beautiful thing. We have settlers from Yudav Shemron who are living in hardcore settlements in Hebron who are volunteering for United Atzala hand-in-hand with Arab volunteers of United Atzala. And they love each other. They really get to know each other and to respect each other. And yes, everyone has its political views. We're not trying to change people, their religion. We're not trying to make people religious or secular. We're not trying to make peace we're trying to create an environment where everyone can agree on one thing, which is life. But being in this position that you're in, bringing so many people together, has that made you more political? Are you a political person at all? Or does that stay out of your life? I have my political views, and uh, my family knows them. None of the volunteers know them. I don't get my political views involved with anything to do with Hatzalah. I think Hatzalah should be above politics. We have Ambassador David Friedman is a very close friend of the organization, and Martin Indyk is a very close friend of the organization. And Dan Shapiro. We have Ahmad Tibi from the Knesset, loves United Hatzalah, and Arya Derry, and, uh, and, and Bibi, and uh, Meretz. Everyone in between. We are not political. We come with a new message. Some things we need to put politics aside. Unfortunately, in America, because I spend a lot of times in America, and I see the, the divide in the people, they agree on nothing. Even things they should agree, they don't agree on because politics is so strong and it divides everything. We decided in the United States that, yes, we need the most religious people with us and the most secular people with us and any religion in between. The organization works on donations. You're basically competing for people's charitable dollars. Do you think United Hatzalah is, is more worthy than an art museum? Is it more worthy than cancer research? How do you think about it in people's minds? I don't think it's more worthy. I don't like to say that because it's, it's arrogant of mine. I just think lives come before a lot of other things. I think a lot of great organizations in Israel, and art is very important. And of course, research for cancer is very, very important. But I could say that when someone supports United Atzala, 
the value of his donation goes very, very far. We give him a tremendous dividend. If someone sponsors an ambicycle, we go out with one ambicycle that costs $36,000, we go out to 800 emergencies a year. It's like, and you give, it's like giving a fishing rod to someone to fish and make a living, right? Here you're giving an ambicycle for someone to save many, many, many lives. That money doesn't end. I went to business school at Harvard, and Harvard is known to have the biggest endowment in the world, $30 billion. And they still ask us to donate money, and I thought it's, it's ridiculous. Sorry, Harvard. What you're saying is so clear and sharp and focused. I'm amazed that you have a challenge to raise money. You know, I'm curious about this issue. Is the amount of donations coming and growing every year? Is it still a big challenge? Do you have some major donors? What's the biggest donation you received? I once heard that Harvard could actually take their endowment and, and support every student in the school without paying tuition, right? But they're smart. They want to build a school that will continue forever. United at Seller right now, we're not Harvard. We are an amazing organization. We, we treated three and a half million people since we started as volunteers. But I have to make sure the organization has the support. So we have, we have people who are supporting like Mark Gerson, our chairman. Uh, he started a company called Gerson Lerman and became a very successful company, and he went to other companies. He is our biggest supporter, him and his wife, Erica. And they sponsor every month. He asked me, Mark, you want me to give once a year or every month? I said, I want you to give every month. I want people to go ahead and say, Hatzalah is one of my charities I'm giving to. I want to give a monthly donation of $1, $100, or $100,000 a month. That way we could have a sustainable organization. The second thing I'm dreaming on is having an endowment, not $30 billion, but to have enough in the endowment that will keep the organization forever. You say United Tetzala has reached three and a half million people. What are some of the most amazing stories, most memorable stories that you remember of saving a life? Well, every day we have incredible stories. Um, my daughter is a volunteer at Tetzala now, and we were doing the holiday, the Shavuot holiday in Jerusalem yesterday in the center of the city, not far from here. And uh, she woke up at 7 o'clock in the morning on, uh, on the Chag, and she ran to save a little baby. It was, the mother was actually supposed to go to the hospital to have a baby, and the baby was just rushing out. And the baby had some difficulties, and if it wasn't for my daughter to arrive on time, she came in the first two minutes. Who knows what kind of damage that little baby would have had, little baby girl. And when I hear these stories, and it happens every day, I saved in my own hands hundreds of lives hundreds of lives in my own hands, and I remember every story. Every one of these lives is something I'll never forget. If it's a, a four-year-old child, just a few months ago, I was actually on the way to the airport, and I just made a left turn into Modine, and uh, another volunteer at came, and we saved this little child's life, four years old, asthma attack. And I have all my medical supplies in the back. I had my luggage and my Hatzala luggage. Like, I have a whole ambulance in the back of my car. And we have 5,000 of these cars around Israel, private cars, who have medical supplies in the back. Think about it. It's like faster than Uber. But I'm thinking 3 million people, if each of them gave a dollar, you know, you'd, that'd go a long way towards your budget. Do these people give back? You know, it's interesting. We don't charge anyone for service. Uh, if you call for an ambulance in Israel, they have 155 ambulance services in Israel. The largest one or the smallest one, they all charge for service. 
you have insurance, your insurance will pay you back only if you get admitted in the hospital. If you stay in the emergency room, you will have to pay from your own pocket. Many people don't call for an ambulance because they don't have money to pay. So we said, not only we come quick, we come for free. We get 30% of our budget, which is about 20, over $20 million a year from people who randomly send us donations without us asking. You know, it's a lot of money. And Israeli, Israelis who just send in donations. The rest, we have to fundraise and meet people and convince them. And some people, I remember a guy who we saved his life. He called me up to thank you. He had a cardiac arrest. And uh, he said, I want to donate one of these motorcycles, ambulances, you know, the ambicycles. I said, thank you so much. I came to see him. The guy didn't have money to live. He had no money. I saw his conditions. He says, I'm going to pay for it somehow. I said, you don't have to do it. Don't do it. He said, no, I want to do it. He started a campaign on the internet. He said, my life was saved by Hetzel. I want to pay back. I want to donate one of these things. And he raised $36,000 from people. He put, I think, $100. He didn't have hmm. more than that. But he got all the rest from people who just loved the story. And they went ahead and they donated it. So who would still want to call an ambulance today? Why would anybody call an ambulance if they know that Hatzalah can be there in such a short time? Well, first of all, we can replace the ambulance systems. We don't have, we have 30 ambulances for the whole country. You know, they have, they have 155 ambulance companies in Israel, about 1,200 ambulances altogether. The biggest one is MDA. And they have about a few hundred, I don't remember the exact number, but we can replace that. We're not going to be transferring, you know, don't forget, people have stomach aches, they need to go to hospital. We're not going to, we can replace that. People need to go have head injuries or whatever it is, they need to go to hospital. We are there for the first few minutes. So take us through your relationship with the ambulance service. How did it change and where is it at now? Are you guys good pals Or are they still viewing you as something that is competing with what they're trying to do? The only way we could be good pals is, is if we don't do a good job. They look at us as disruptive. That's what disruptive organization does. We did a better job faster and for free. They charge for service. So 30% of the people who call for ambulances in Israel don't really need to go to hospital. The biggest problem in hospitals today, they don't have room for people to put them in their in the emergency room. They just lay them everywhere around the halls if you go to hospitals in Israel. They don't have the manpower to deal with all these people coming to the hospital. Sometimes it takes a hospital crew three or four hours to look at a patient when they arrive. And these people are emergency patients. The ambulances, their goal is to get to the patient, take him to the hospital because that's how they make a living. We don't want to take people to the hospitals. We want to help them. Many of the people we treat, 30% of the people we treat, don't need to end up in the hospital. I would say even 50, but I'm, I'm a little conservative and I'm saying 30%. People who are go to hospital in certain condition are endangering their lives. I say hospitals are not for sick people. And I always talk about hospitals, how, how dangerous they are. And I like hospitals. I'm not against hospitals. Taking someone blinded, just, okay, you need to go to hospital. Think about it if that person was your mother. Would you just throw in a hospital? She's a 90-year-old lady with a little cough. Are you just going to throw in a hospital? 
Who's going to look at her? Who's going to look after her? How is she going to get back home afterwards? If she does get back home, how many diseases will that person receive when she's in the hospital? So they, to say they love us, they don't love us because we actually changed a lot of things, how things are going on. We go to people, we treat them, they feel better. We say, you know what? Go to your doctor. Go to these fast emergency cares they have like Terim and others. Go be checked. Go send the doctor to your home. A lot of patients who get to the hospital and just fill up, they can't even deal with the real emergencies. They deal with just simple emergencies, and it catches all the space they have. Ellie, you're a, you're, you're a larger-than-life leader. You've given TED Talks. You've been honored by the, the World Economic Forum. And, and now you're trying to take the organization globally. And I wonder, you know, does it scale without you everywhere all the time? Are you now recruiting maybe the Latino Ellie or the Chinese Ellie? Do you need to find leaders like you, or, or are you tackling this challenge in other ways? So I don't call them leaders. I call them Michiganas. I always call myself the chief Michigan or the master Michigan. You need to be crazy to do this. So Michigan is really crazy. Why would someone want to do this? Why would someone want to stop his golf game? He's waiting for this golf game the whole week, and he's, I have a volunteer. I have a volunteer who's uh, one of the greatest golf instructors, and every time he has a seller call, he's, uh, he, he jumps on an ambicycle, lives in Ranana, and he goes out uh, to save people. I said, why would a guy, a normal person do that? Why would a woman who's a lawyer, she gets a call and, and some, some baby's not breathing well and she just runs there and saves this baby. It's not even her baby. Why was she doing this? She's not making money out of this. So we created an environment for people who are crazy about the idea who want to join us. And I found out it's not only in Israel. These thousands of people around the world who heard my TED Talk and other, other things. You have five kids. You mentioned... Your daughter is also a first responder. Is that your dream for them? Do you want them all to be Hatsala responders? Well, I could, I, I'll make it easier for me. I have only two who are not Hatsala responders. So <laughs> three are out of the five. Um, I always want them to be volunteers. I don't care what they do. Like my son, when he was 11, 12 years old, he started volunteering with kids with Down syndrome, he would go volunteer twice a week, and he adopted a child that he plays with. He was playing with for years till he went to high school. My daughter started volunteering with kids with cancer when she was 14 and a half years old. She used to go to play with them in hospitals, and then she became a counselor in camp. Eventually, the the juke in Hebrew they say the juke the the bug the bug of uh, Hatzala went into them and. Uh, now Gitti, my wife, became volunteer. She uh, She's uh, responding to three, four calls a day. I can't take it anymore. Like, <laughs> ridiculous. And, uh, you know, f- for years during Shabbat dinner, I used to run out and uh, go out to Hatzala calls and then come back after the house is clean and the guest left and everything. And now she's leaving me in the, with the guest and the dishes. It's very uncomfortable for me, this whole situation. <laughs> <laughs> How do you manage your time? So you have this, national organization here, you are, I think, half the time abroad trying to build United Hatzala all over the world. You have five kids. You are yourself still an emergency responder. What are your priorities and how do you deal with your time management? So I'm lucky I have a great team who take care of my uh, management of my time. And I try doing what's very, very important for the organization. I'm 
very focused. Last month, I was in four countries, and I'm going back to the States now, and I'm going to New York and California. So I'm traveling a lot to promote United Atzala. I put 90% of my time into it. I still have a few of my own personal businesses. I still have to leave a few minutes a day for my kids. I actually communicate with my kids through WhatsApp. So video WhatsApp, it's a great thing. I, I, I just love WhatsApp. It's a great tool for me. And my kids, they, they communicate with me when I'm on the plane usually. So two of my kids actually changed the name on their phone from Abba to Avinu Shabashamayim. Our father, Our father up in, in the sky. <laughs> so that's how they call me. Who, who's your role model? Who? That's hard. I think my father was my role model. When he was a child, and I heard these stories, and it, it actually gave me a lot of strength. He grew up in New York, in the Lower East Side, and and that's when the the Holocaust started. You know, the war started, and my father was bothered from it very, very much. None of his family was in Europe that time all American. And my father went ahead and he was raising money as a 10-year-old kid to save the Jews in Europe, to help the Jews to run to France and then to run out of uh, Europe. Europe. And they had an organization called Vada Atzala then. And my father told me a story that actually gave me the strength to do what I'm doing today. He told me that many people, Jewish people, told him when he knocked on their doors, he was a kid, they were raising money because they really used to pay off to get the Jews out of Europe. And a lot of Jews that he asked for help for told him, the Jewish problem in Europe is not our problem. We don't care about the Jews in Europe. And my father heard that. He was crying as a kid. And he said to me, I didn't give up and I went to meet the people who did care. Hmm. And he, he says, when I met the people who cared, that's when my life changed. And I told, I say the same thing. When I started this mission, many people told me it doesn't make sense. Who cares? That's the government's job, not our job to help. And I always tell the people, when the government do this, I won't ask you for help. And then I find the people who say, you know what? It's our obligation. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. If you know, if your child is choking, you would want someone to come rush to your house and save his life. So do the same to others. If you're in Israel and something happens to someone around you or to yourself, who do you call? Hmm. I would call 1221 and give my address where I'm located, not where I live, because that's a big mistake people do. They give their own personal address, give the address where you're located, and we will call for help. We will call the ambulances and everything. Uh, but if you call for an ambulance, please let them know to call United Hotel as well. So you don't have direct access to that We do, call. but it's still a battle. It's not so simple. We're, we're still fighting for it to make it official, and we are getting the emergency calls from ambulances, but not fast enough. Barack, our anniversary is coming up. We generally completely forget our wedding anniversary, and we rarely buy each other gifts. Um, but maybe this year we should. And um, Let's sponsor a day. Sponsor a day. That's what do you it. think? All right. That's amazing. And you'll, that's one of the most amazing gifts you could ever think of. And, and I could tell you something. 
to know, and you could even join an ambulance that day and just be part of this because to be in the back of a motorcycle and ambulance, just to, to go on a call, save someone in the anniversary, it's the most amazing feeling in the world that you know. I know you for many years, and you came to Israel, you made Aliyah, and uh, it was a sacrifice. And you realize it's not really a sacrifice. You really build a beautiful family here. That's right. And you're building a beautiful country with you guys' work. And the fact that you are now doing this podcast, bringing great people on the show to tell their story, you actually creating a better country. And your anniversary is going to be a very special anniversary, I promise you. And it's the, most, the best gift I could, I could think of. Thank you so much, Ellie. Founder Stories is brought to you by F2 Capital in partnership with IDC International Radio and No Camels. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app.